following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, here we are at the last installment in the book of Malachi. It's a, it's a brief prophecy, really, in the grand scheme of things, but it's very important because of where it is in the Bible. So, on this last message from Malachi, before we change gears and go, ironically, uh, into the New Testament, into the Gospel of Matthew, which would be the next thing that we hear from the Lord... Uh, I want to just give you a couple interesting facts about this prophecy that you may not know as we're changing gears. And when when I say that, here's what I mean. Uh, After Malachi's prophecy, there was a a period of silence over 400 years, a little bit over 400 years of silence. And so, literally speaking, God's people heard... You know, God had been in the business of sending prophets and sending His spokesmen to give the word of the Lord to the people of the Lord. And so, when, when He didn't do that, you can imagine what's, what's wrong. What, you know, is God just forsaking us? Is, you know, what, why is He not speaking to us uh, for a while? And so, the anxiety level of the people probably rose considerably. And so, the the transition there between the two testaments and between the word of the Lord, the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we'll actually actually be starting Matthew's gospel next Sunday. And so it'll be almost, even though there's a break of silence in between, it will be somewhat continuous from Old Testament to New Testament. But I want to tell you a couple of details about Malachi, specifically the Hebrew Bible. So if you were to look at the Hebrew Bible, what a, a, a Jewish person would have had access to uh, in that time period, the scrolls and the writings, here's what you'd find. The Hebrew Bible is arranged in a very particular order, and that may not seem odd to you until you find out what the order is. You might have heard in the Old Testament this phrase, the law, the prophets, and the writings in that order, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Well, that's the order of the Old Testament for an Orthodox Jew. The only difference there is our English translations are not in that order. And so you look at our Bibles and you see the Law, the, the, the um, Torah, so to speak, the first five books, um, that's the Law of Moses, but then you see other books, not the prophets. You see different writings. You see Joshua and Judges and you see uh, the First and Second Chronicles. Right? And you see uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and Ruth and you see those other letters and writings and, and books in between and you don't get to uh, the prophets and you see uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and then the twelve minor prophets and that's at the end. Right? So... Malachi is the last book in our Old Testament. But if you were to look at the Hebrew Bible, it would be Second Chronicles. You get to the end of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, and it's Second Chronicles. 
So the ending, if you are reading it straight through, is quite different for a Jew who's reading versus us now, we, we always think, well, the last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. Well, a Jewish person would not understand what we're talking about because that's not the last book in their Old Testament. So here's the similarity. The book of Malachi was written between 450 and 430 B.C. And that was it. And so then that's why we say there's 400 plus years of silence until Jesus is born. The, the New Testament is being written in the first part of the first century. But guess what? The book of Second Chronicles, written between 450 and 425 B.C. So chronologically, those two books are written about the same time. So either one could be considered, from a timeline perspective, could be considered appropriate to be the last book in the Old Testament, right? Because they were written about the same time. But here's the difference. You can actually read those books, and you read this prophecy. There's only one of those two that points us directly to Jesus. Jesus is, is in all 66 books, don't get me wrong. The, the main character of the whole Bible is Jesus. But it takes more than a time period to be where God wants us to be. So when we read through Malachi and we get to the end of Malachi's prophecy, knowing that Jesus is going to be the next thing we see and God is going to be silent for over 400 years, that context should guard our hearing and our understanding of what we're about to read today. Because if we think of it in those terms, okay, yeah, those two books, both written about the same time, but one of them, Malachi, points to Jesus. And that's what we need. We need to be pointed to Jesus. Because, I don't know if you realize this, our natural inclination is not Jesus. If we're left to ourselves, we're not just going to wake up one morning and come up with this bright idea. You know what? I think I need to spend time with Jesus. It's just the opposite. We need to be led and directed toward Jesus. That's what this does. So I want to start reading today in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. And we'll go through the end of this prophecy, chapter 4, verse 6. And then we'll talk about a few things that God, I believe, wants us to hear today. Chapter 3, verse 13. Your words are against me, are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping His requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. And at that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord took notice and listened 
So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I'm preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. For look, the day's coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will, be, will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I'm preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Father, I pray that you would take this word of yours. Help us to understand what we're reading. Help us to understand the truth you have here before us. And God, I pray you would give us grace and mercy as we understand this truth so we can live it out. We can be obedient to what you have told us. And we can live accordingly, live uh, according to this Word in light of what you've said. We don't want to be disobedient. We don't want to dishonor your name. And so I pray you'd help us. Without your help, we are truly without hope. So help us today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this prophecy has taught me a lot about um, perseverance. Not just in life, but it's taught me a lot about pressing forward even when maybe I just don't feel like it. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if you can identify with that. But I, I found that this particular prophecy, when, you, when I've studied through it, it just seems like every week, maybe my expectations are wrong, but I, I keep hoping for, well, maybe there's a positive note coming in the next paragraph, and I read, and then, nope, there's another hard, strong word from God. And... It's difficult for me sometimes to find the encouragement in the midst of a hard teaching. I don't know if, that, if you understand what I'm trying to say, but I get to the end of this prophecy and it's more uh, heavy stuff. It's about the day of the Lord. It's about fearing the Lord. It's about uh, the potential of a curse if we don't turn and, and follow Jesus. And... So that, that seems like uh, judgment. That seems like punishment. It seems uh, discouraging almost. Until you realize 
It doesn't have to be that way. I mentioned before about how the last book in the Hebrew Bible and the last book in our Old Testament are different. They were written about the same time, but they were in different positions. And so the way that ends is far different. I mean, if you, let's, just, let's just compare. You read the very last sentence of Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Otherwise, I'll come and strike the land with a curse. Okay, that's not happy. Okay, but if you were to go back in your Bible and, you know, you've got Kings and Chronicles and you go to Second Chronicles chapter 36 and it's talking about the decree of King Cyrus of Persia. And it's kind of like benign. It's just like, you know, it's historical. It's talking about what was happening. It's nothing about a curse. You know, no wonder that it's in that order because it has a much less dreadful ending, you know. You get to the end of Malachi and God's talking about cursing everybody because they're disobedient. So uh, it just helps you put things in perspective, I believe. So here's the three things that we see in the text today. There's really three sections. One is the ending paragraph of chapter 3, then the first three verses of chapter 4, then the final three verses of the prophecy. And I just want to walk through and, and hope, hopefully we'll understand some things about what God's saying to us. The first thing is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord from verse 13 to verse 18, and here's basically what we have. There's two different ways to respond to God. You have the response of the wicked and the response of the righteous. And they are completely different. So the first few verses here in chapter 3, verse 13, God says, once again, He, he has these statements all throughout Malachi, uh, you've done this, and the people say, well, how have we done that? Okay, so same thing here, the last one. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? So again, this whole feeling of denial all the way through. Denial on the part of God's people. They don't think they've done anything wrong. You ever been there? You ever felt conviction of the Holy Spirit? Or maybe someone in, in earthly terms, human terms, maybe somebody comes up to you and accuses you of something, and you're like, I, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't done anything wrong. Now, that could be the truth. But what about a different time, a different context? Because what I'm talking about according to this word, would be maybe when someone walks up to you and you're caught red-handed. It's obvious. You're guilty. Whatever it is they're about to say to you, you know you did it. You know you said it. You know you're in the wrong. And yet, something in you wants to respond in denial. Why would you say that? I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? It's almost like uh, a fear of punishment causes us to temporarily just lose our minds. And, and we are out of touch with reality. We know what we said, or we know what we did. We know we're wrong, but yet when it's brought to our attention and we're confronted with it, we, just, we don't want to own up to it. We don't want to take responsibility for our own actions. And sadly, that principle right there is running rampant in the world. Today, nobody wants to take responsibility for their actions. Nobody wants to just stand up, be a man, and say, yes, you're right, I'm wrong, I apologize, everything you said is true, it's my fault. Nobody, have you ever heard somebody say that recently? Not often. Why, why do you think we have 
backlogs in our judicial system? Why do we even have to have trials and witnesses and juries and judges and lawyers? Why do we even have to have that? Because you know what? If everybody who did wrong would just step up and, and have a backbone and say, yeah, you're exactly right, I'm guilty, I did it. You don't need a legal system. If people were just honest, took responsibility, held accountable for their actions. The very existence of a judicial system screams out, there's a bunch of liars everywhere. Deception is everywhere. Right? Otherwise we wouldn't need it. That's who we're talking about here. God's people, supposedly. Your words against me are harsh. What have we said? It's, it's through the whole book. And so then God says, well, let, let me tell you what you said. Because God's got a pretty good memory. You know, He, he has everything uh, uh, in line. He knows what's happening. But look at the perspective of these people. The attitude. It's useless to serve God. You ever thought that? You ever been tempted to think that? What have we gained by keeping His requirements? Walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts. We consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, I've seen some people like that. I've seen some people who don't care anything about God, never darken the door of the church, never open a Bible, just live for themselves, completely selfish, uh, hateful even, don't care about anybody and yet they seem to just be cruising through life like everything's fine. Jesus had something to say about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He would make a statement and constantly follow it up with this. They've received their reward. They've received their reward. In other words, you want to live for this world and the sin around it? You want to get all you can get now and not worry about eternity? Okay, well you better enjoy it because that's all you're ever going to get. And when you meet the Lord before His throne, it's going to be a different story. Because you refuse to be accountable for your actions. That's the response of the wicked. But the response of the righteous is completely different. If you look at verse 15, or verse 16 I should say, the Bible says at those times, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for His name. You see the response? The, the perspective is completely different. There are those who would look at, at God and, and just deny everything right to His face and act like they've done nothing wrong. And then there are those who fear God who have reverence for His name, who follow His commands or, or try to. And the response is different. God says in verse 17, I will have compassion on them. You will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. So what is this fear of the Lord? Well, it's two different aspects of that. One aspect of fear is to be afraid. The other aspect of fear is to be um, reverent, maybe in awe. And so you want to have respect. You want to 
understand that when you're facing God Almighty, that's kind of serious. It's kind of important. So a Christian, a follower of Christ, should never be afraid of Jesus. But we should definitely be in awe of Him. A holy reverence, that type of fear. But if we were in the camp of the wicked, maybe we should be afraid. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is, if you don't know Jesus. That makes all the difference. See, all this is all about Jesus. We should be reverent, but we should never be afraid. The fear of the Lord. Number two, the day of the Lord. When you get to chapter 4 in the first three verses... We saw there's two different responses to the Lord in the end of chapter 3, but now there's two different outcomes on the day of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, Look, the day's coming burning like a furnace. That doesn't sound good at all. This is the outcome for the wicked. So you have the response of the wicked and the response of the righteous. Now you have the outcome for the wicked and the outcome for the righteous. And they're still totally different. When this day comes, the day of the Lord, burning like a furnace, the Bible says all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of hosts, not leaving them root or branches. That sounds really terrible. But understand, that's an outcome for those who have not followed the Lord. So the outcome is not arbitrary. See, this is one thing I think we really need to concentrate on and try to remember when we're dealing with how God relates to His people. Right? God is not arbitrary. If you are not following Christ, if you rebel against the Gospel, you reject Him completely, and you don't follow His commandments, you don't love one another, you don't seek to serve others, you're not humble, you're arrogant, you don't care anything about anyone except yourself, why would it be surprising when that behavior meets up with God's judgment? That's perfectly logical. Right? That's the outcome of the wicked. So, when those who are uh, rejecting God completely and they have no concern for this coming day of the Lord, which is certain, that kind of makes you wonder, what are you thinking? Are, are you not paying attention? Romans chapter 1 talks about people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Like it's inconvenient to, to believe the Bible. It's inconvenient to follow God because that conflicts with the lifestyle they want to live. And so those things just, well, I don't have, you know, that, that cramps my style. I can't, I can't pay attention to the Bible. I can't go to church. I can't um, invest in the things of God because that's going to just make me uh, uncomfortable or that's, my, my life will be boring if I do that. So I'm going to just do what I want to do. And yet then be surprised when God has something to say about that. That's the outcome of the wicked. You look at verse 2 though, 
Look at the outcome for the righteous. When the day of the Lord arrives, you who fear My name, He says, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. This is a direct uh, correlation to Christ. The Son of Righteousness with healing. You know how you get healed? You run to the cross where Jesus died for your sins to heal you, to reconcile you to God, for you to trust in Him and His sacrifice and His righteousness. That's the outcome for those who fear the name of the Lord. You'll go out and playfully jump. Have you ever seen, Cooper, have you ever seen a baby calf let him out of a stall and just goes, runs around crazy? Just like not a care in the world, right? Just all happy? That's the illustration that God gave Malachi right here. I, I think of it when I, if ever I see a, a baby deer that's not real comfortable on his legs yet, just kind of running around, just like unstable, but just like, you know, just jumping around, playing, just happy as can be. Not a care in the world. That's the picture of those who fear the name of the Lord when the day of the Lord comes. So you see that the perspective is totally different. Those who have rebelled against God, those who have rejected the Gospel, those who don't care anything about Christ, when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be terrible. Terrible. We can't fathom how bad it's going to be. Because there will finally be a day of accountability. A life lived for however long, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, completely void of accountability and responsibility is going to come to a head all at once. You remember in Scripture when the Bible says not to respond in like manner when someone is harsh with you or someone treats you poorly or speaks poorly to you and it says don't repay evil with evil and then right after that it says leave room for the wrath of God and remember He who said vengeance is mine, I will repay saith the Lord. Remember that? Does that sound familiar? Well, here's what that means. Is there opportunity for us to repent? Is there opportunity for us to turn from our sin and to seek the face of God and to, to confess and surrender and be forgiven? Isn't that available? Well, sure. If you're breathing and you hear the Gospel, and you repent of your sins, and you surrender to Jesus, He absolutely will forgive you. You'll be cleansed from all your unrighteousness. However, if you don't, it would be beyond foolish to think that Almighty God will not hold you accountable one day. You cannot live your entire life and think you will never have to answer for your words or actions or decisions. Everyone, everyone will stand before the throne of God and give an account for their lives. Everyone. No one is excluded from that. And... and I've, I've said this I don't know how many times, but I'll say it again. 
the only way you come out of that meeting on the positive side is if you are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. You cannot possibly walk up to the presence of God and think on your own you're good enough. No one's good enough. No one but Jesus. So when there is a day of the Lord that is definite, definitely coming, the Bible says you fixed a day when you will judge mankind according to the standard of Jesus Christ and you've furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. It's happening. Malachi is trying, he's screaming out to the people. It's happening. The day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming. If you don't turn from your sin, if you don't turn from your wickedness and run to Jesus, the day's coming. And you will not stand. This is the most firm warning you can imagine as Malachi paints the picture of the outcome. Chapter 4, verse 1. Burning like a furnace. Or, verse 2. The Son of Righteousness rising with healing in His wings. Not a hard choice, right? I mean, if we're paying attention, that's not a hard call at all. Do you want to burn in a furnace? Or do you want to be covered with the wings of the Son of Righteousness and be healed? Huh. Well, let me pray about it. Uh, B. I don't want the first thing. It's not that it's not that difficult. And yet we find a way to choose poorly. Even though the the choice is so obvious. It should it should be a no brainer. You you want to know the power of sin in the world? Sin, our enemy, could take a choice this obvious to which we should just immediately say, no, I want Jesus. I want, I want Jesus. Absolutely. 100%. That's what we should say. But sin is so bad and so powerful it would cause us to hear this prospect of do you want burning like a furnace or do you want the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. And, and instead of immediately saying, I want Jesus, we'd say, hmm, um, uh, let, me, let me get back to you on that. Really? It makes no sense. Verse 3 even says, the relationship between the wicked and the righteous. Not only will the wicked meet this outcome and the righteous meet this much better outcome. Look at verse 3. Talking still to those who are righteous and fear the name of the Lord. You'll trample the wicked. There'll be ashes under your feet on the day I'm preparing. Bad things, man. Bad things. It seems so obvious. So what is the... the Last thing that we hear. What's left to say at this point? Verses 4, 5, and 6 is a final warning. A final warning to all mankind. 
Remember the Word of God. Remember the Word of God. Those who have rejected it should remember it and maybe change course. Those who have embraced Christ and have embraced Scripture should remember Scripture. He refers to the instruction given to Moses. So we're starting with the Ten Commandments and all that God said flowing from that. We should remember that. James Boyce said this way about this particular verse. He said, there's, there's always people who want to hold forth the law apart from God's personal intervention in their lives. And so they become legalists. Like I, I hear, I, I want the rules, but I don't necessarily want the relationship. So you become a legalist. But there are others, he says, they are more numerous and a greater danger today who want to exalt their experience of God to the neglect of obedience. And that cannot be done simply because the God who acts is also the God who speaks. And if you claim to have a relationship with God, then you must heed Malachi's warning, remember the law and do it. So basically he's saying you can't have one without the other. You can't have God's Word and then not have a relationship with Him. You can't have an experience with God and then not pay attention to His Word. They go together. What did Jesus say? Among many other things. If you love Me, what will you do? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you keep my commandments. It goes together. So the last thing, this is the last little thing I want to talk about here that I think it's um, important for us to see. Interesting. The last two verses of this prophecy, the last thing that is said before the years and years of silence. Verse 5. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. That has been the subject of much debate over the years. Is Elijah himself going to physically show up before Jesus comes back? Well, this is why Orthodox Jews are still waiting for a Messiah and don't think that it was Jesus because they haven't seen Elijah walk down the street yet. And so they're, they're waiting. They, they don't believe the New Testament at all. But here's the funny thing. When you read the New Testament, there's a few things that Jesus has to say about this. Because in Matthew chapter 11, verses 10 to 15, this is what we read. This is the one, talking about John the Baptist, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Which, by the way, is a quote of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Then Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. That's Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. But there's a problem. So that was the signal that Jesus is the Messiah. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. But what about Malachi 4, verse 5? Because now Jesus has come. Now we're looking for a second coming. 
So then you go over to Matthew chapter 17 and you read about the transfiguration. Do you remember this? Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And while they're up there, Jesus is transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun. And they see Moses and Elijah. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 17 beginning in verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. So, did you hear that? Now this is Matthew 17. Jesus is already in his earthly ministry. He's already established that he's the Messiah. But now he says, Elijah is coming and will restore. That's future. That's future. So now we're not talking about John the Baptist anymore. So here's what we find. You read Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then you read Matthew 11 where Jesus says, well, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. And then you see the transfiguration and Jesus says, well, Elijah's going to come and restore. Future. Now we're talking about Second coming of Christ. Do you know what that tells us? When Jesus came as the Messiah, He inaugurated the kingdom of God. He began the preaching of the kingdom of God. He Himself was the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And when He suffered and died and rose and ascended, now He's pointing forward and saying, I'm going to come again. So it's almost as if Jesus Himself is the Spirit of Elijah for the second coming. Robbie Gallaty said it this way, The key for our purposes is the future tense, will restore. At the time Jesus is speaking, John the Baptist is already dead. So we know that He cannot be the Elijah mentioned in Malachi 4 verse 5. In addition, John the Baptist cannot be this Elijah because this Elijah is going to reestablish all things. John the Baptist was hindered from doing this because of the wickedness of the people's hearts. Thus, Jesus is stating that He is this Elijah-like figure initiating His kingdom at His resurrection and completing it at His second coming when He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, a time of great repentance. So all of these nebulous things, these, these odd things we're trying to sort out. Okay, well, if Malachi said Elijah's going to be coming and then Jesus said John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah and then now he's pointing forward to another appearance of this Elijah-like figure and what's going to happen? So before we get all bogged down in, alright, what does that mean exactly? And try to write out a little detailed report. Before we do that, let me try to simplify it for us all in this way. What do we know for certain? Here's what I know for certain. No doubt in my mind. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ was and is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the one, the Savior, who went to a cross and died for my sins and shed His blood and rose again victoriously on the third day. Securing my redemption. That's a fact. I know for sure 
Jesus is coming back to take me with Him. Along with all who have trusted in Him and surrendered to Him, embraced the truth of the Gospel, confessed their sins, found forgiveness in Christ. Everyone who fits that description, Jesus is coming back for you. I know that for sure. Just as sure as I know that Jesus really does love me. Because the Bible tells me so. I almost sang that, but I didn't. See, I don't have to. I don't have to wonder. Well, when exactly is Elijah going to show up, and what what's he going to look like, and what what's the time? I don't have to. I don't have to know those answers. Because I do know the answer that really matters. Jesus loved me and gave Himself for me. So, when I come to the Word and I try to decipher what what's being said and try to gather the truth that God has given me so I can respond in the right way, it would be tempting to try to get down into these details and, and find the answers that I'm looking for. But I've already found the answer I need. His name's Jesus. That's, that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why this is even a thing. That's why we have uh, fellowship as a body of Christ. That's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we um, serve one another and love one another and, and humble ourselves and look out for others before ourselves. That's why we do any of those things. It's all because of Jesus. And when you look at this Scripture and you, and you consider this whole prophecy that Malachi was inspired to give us, you might wonder, well, what is, where does that leave us? We, we're trying to put ourselves in the place of God's people. And very simply, it's, it's like this. There were two responses. There were two different outcomes. And now, there are two ways to live. That, that's what it boils down to. There's two ways to live. We can reject the Gospel and live for ourselves. We can be selfish and self-serving, only looking out for what we want regardless of how it affects Everyone else. And this might seem beneficial. But it only leads to ruin and death. Or, we can embrace the Gospel. We can surrender our lives to Christ completely. We can be humble and unselfish, seeking to serve others while bringing glory and honor to Jesus. And this way may seem difficult and challenging. But it will ultimately lead to eternal life in heaven with Jesus. Those are the only two options. There are two ways to live. Reject the Gospel, live for yourself, or embrace the Gospel and follow Jesus. One leads to death. One leads to life. There's no third way. So we have to decide for ourselves which way are we going? What, what road are we on? 
it's not too late to you know, take an exit and change roads. I mean, you can do that. God allows that. But if we don't know what road we're on, then we won't know if we need to change our direction. We've got to look at our direction and ask and answer some potentially difficult questions. Am I, am I following Jesus or am I just playing around? What am I really doing? This is not, it's not something to mess around with. These decisions have eternal consequence. Either follow Jesus or don't. But whatever you decide to do, own it. Take responsibility. If you're going to follow Jesus, follow Jesus. But if you're not, stop calling yourself a Christian. Because that does more harm than good. You don't want to live for Jesus, don't live for Him, but don't act like you do. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.